Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome back to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. My name is Norman Horn. I'm the founder and president of LCI. And with me today to talk about Faith Seeking Freedom, our new book published by LCI and available on Amazon.com for a small fee, is one of the co-authors with me, Dick Clark. Dick is an attorney in the great state of Nebraska and is a wonderful, wonderful guy who I've known for, oh my goodness, 15 or so years. And if you've listened to all of the chapters thus far, you've heard his voice thus far at this point, but let's welcome him back, Dick. Thanks for having me back, Norman. Always fun time to uh, chat about topics that we would probably be chatting about with somebody anyway. Might as well record <laughs> it, right? Yeah, you know, record it for posterity. I mean, that's kind of why we wrote the book in the first place, right? Is that, that's you know, we're... Guilty. We, yeah, guilty as charged. But, you know, again, glad to have you here. And, and today we are talking about chapter seven in this wonderful little book, if we may say so ourselves. What about public goods and services? Now, again, just to, if you're coming at this new, the book Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions is kind of in a, in a conversational format to where we present questions that are commonly asked of libertarians and try to answer them in short and concise ways with as much of a Christian libertarian bent as we can. Uh, and so chapter seven, what about public goods and services, I think is the oft question that arises when you talk with a non-libertarian is, well, what about the roads? They're fundamentally asking questions about how do things that we typically think of as goods and services that are provided for publicly by the state, how are they going to come about in a free economy, in a free society? And I want to kind of set this up for the conversation with at least asking one sort of theological question from the outset. And it's not an answer per se, but more of an objection to the non-libertarian view on grounds that hopefully will be understood by the Christian. And it kind of sounds like this. Would God have created a world in which the only way to have prosperity amongst us would have been to have acts of violence committed against others. Now, I think naturally the kind of response to that is, well, no, God wouldn't do that. But that's kind of what these public goods questions are like. Because in the end, when we request that goods are provided by some sort of overarching state entity from above that is funded by taxes, we are asking for, well, violence to be committed against others in the form of you know, extraction of resources in order to provide for some good or service. Dick, does that sound like a, a good way to start here? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's the classic problem because government is supposed to be the answer to the question, hey, how do we provide these things that we think only communities of people can provide, right? And and there's sort of this idea, and, and certainly for those of us who grew up in town in the modern era, we see the state do an awful lot. And so sometimes it's maybe you a take historical it for granted. question yeah. about, hey, has this ever been provided? How has this ever been provided by somebody other than a state actor? And of course, we see lots of things where we 
are dissatisfied with the state of affairs in the world, right? And we want to say, well, that there ought to be a law for that. There ought to be a fix for that. And we wonder how that could happen without finally just saying, well, you have to, right? And that's sort of the, what the state is, is that institution that can initiate the, well, you have to process and impose its coercive influence on people, compel people to act or not act in a certain way. And, you know, the public goods problem is not something that the Bible fails to address, by the way, right? There are all sorts of things right. that believers are instructed on that are really for the, the common benefit. And the one that comes to mind uh, is just the idea of not fully harvesting your field and sort of having this gleaning uh, capacity so that people who don't, you know, who are living hand to mouth, who, who are barely making it, can make it, right? Have, have something yeah. that's provided for them. And by the way, does that also encourage you to maybe produce a little more than you need? And so you can lay up and, you know, I mean, it, it promotes savings and capital investment. And it's not just purely about charity. I think it's also about stepping up your production beyond the bare minimum, which of course allows you to have trade at all, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting point because, yeah, there, there's <laughs> the faulty belief that the only way that people would have been able to, to grow food and, and produce would have been, you know, oh, well, they can only do it for their own family. That's it. And that's all that, you know, we should aspire to or some level mm-hmm. is, is just that's not supported by scripture. It's not something that is encouraged. In fact, we're encouraged rather to be productive, to be thrifty and to be erudite and all of these things that help us to produce more. Yeah, and and so another way that the Bible addresses public goods is I think that it really uh, in large part comes down to, hey, who is going to direct this large-scale capital investment? And, you know, we are instructed to set aside capital, set aside goods, and instead of consuming them right away, lay them up for hopefully some productive use for later. And we see all throughout the Bible this idea that we're supposed to be building something. Now, we don't put our hope in treasure, but certainly we're supposed to be diligent. And we see that, you know, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And we even see, you know, Paul uh, in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he's talking about coming to visit the church at Corinth. And he says, look, I'm not in this to come and, uh, you know, collect physical possessions from you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And so, (laughs) and now Paul's kind of joking around, right? Because he's talking to his children in the ministry, not the children of his body. But he's recognizing this sort of rule of nature that parents are supposed to be laying out provisions ahead so that their kids can benefit in the future. And I think that it's not so hard to imagine that we're not just talking about, you know, dried store of, uh, grains or something like that. But we're talking about things like infrastructure, like, you know, the father laying down that road that'll allow the children and the children's children to be more productive and more profitable on the family farm or bringing the goods from the family farm to market. So it's almost as though what you're saying is that individuals and groups of individuals have the capacity to organize themselves in such a way that they can just get stuff done? Well, you know, Norman, I, I would tell you my thesis is that there's no area of productive human endeavor in which violent bureaucratic monopolies enjoy a comparative advantage over competing <laughs> profit-driven entrepreneurs. And that's, so true. and that's true for all the public goods uh, concerns that we have, just like it is for the more easy to understand things like baking bread and producing golf balls and so on and so forth. 
Yeah. Well, and so some of the things that people often bring up in these types of public goods conversations, the, thing, the things that worry people are probably, you know, centered around yeah, maybe three or four things. One is that we've already mentioned, like, well, who will build the roads? The other might be something like, well, how are people going to get educated? And a third might be something like, well, how are we going to deal with miscreants and felons and, and bad guys? In other words, how are we going to have policing or protection? And, you know, there's two broad answers to this. The first one, some might call it a cop-out, but I think it's the most honest answer. And that's that we libertarians are not central planners, right? It's not yeah. the job of Dick Clark and Norman Horn, super swell libertarian, you know, uh, loud talkers to say <laughs> how all facets of the structure of production in society should work, right? We don't know that. And in fact, that's part of our thesis, right, is that central planning can't work. And in fact, that there, there's just an insurmountable knowledge problem for any Politburo or, you know, central organization to dictate how, you know, resources ought to be distributed throughout society in order to optimally satisfy human wants, right? In fact, we know as Austro-libertarians, right, as people who, are, who take a lesson from the Austrian school, that we need those price inputs to help us measure what the relative value of things are, to literally let us be able to compare apples to oranges. And so, that's the broad disclaimer on all this, I think, yeah. first and foremost. But we can do a couple of things to answer these questions in a general way. And one, we can look to historical examples, right? We can say, hey, yeah, when the state hasn't done it, how have roads been constructed in the past? Or how have common schools been administered, provided in the past? Or, or how has a protection service been provided? And so we, we can look to history for that. And some of those models may have worked better than others. Uh, and there, you know, there may be reasons why some of them aren't as commonly used anymore, but some of them may have just been squeezed out by cartel action, right? By the state wanting to push people out of the market. And talking about police and protection, you know, I uh, reviewed uh, as, as part of my job uh, with the Nebraska legislature, I reviewed the history of how we license private detectives in the state of Nebraska and private detective agencies and plainclothes investigators and it's quite interesting because what a lot of people don't realize is that private police were more common than government police in many places in America as recently as 140 years ago, 120 years ago. Oh, yeah. And in fact, private police would even serve, you know, legal process, would, would serve people with papers on behalf of the courts. And they were used for night watchman duties and, you know, this sort of the the idea that I'm going to pay somebody as a storekeeper to keep me from getting robbed at night or to watch my store during the day when there might be shoplifting or robbers or what have you. And all that stuff has existed in the past. And really, we saw a huge move away from private policing and towards government policing, in large part due to the conflict between unions and, say, the Pinkertons, you know, and the other really large private police services, detective agencies, and so on. Because, I mean, there were some really bloody conflicts there. And ultimately, I think the unions won through political means by really largely regulating a lot of the private police out of the market and replacing many of those functions with taxpayer-funded, politically allocated, <laughs> politically controlled government police. And even going back to the 1950s, when they clamped down a little bit further, in part because it was really 
popular and fashionable at the time to, you know, kids were reading the dime novels about, uh, you know, you know, Mickey Splane talking about private detective this and, you know, uh, private investigator that and private eye and so on. So all of that culminated in the police remembering, hey, we've got this competition. And and they made it actually even harder in the 1950s to be a private detective than they had in about the 1870s when they first started regulating this. So in that case, we can see a model that actually satisfied the customers pretty well, but that was sort of put out of commission in large part due to political reasons, political interests. And so, you know, libertarians, especially uh, Austro-libertarians in the Mises Institute orbit, for example, would be familiar with, say, Hans Hoppe's essay on the private production of defense or Bob Murphy's short book, Chaos Theory, which talks about the production of, of security. And suffice it to say, we know there's a demand for this service. We know that people want their person and property to be as physically secure as they can practically make it, given all the other constellation concerns they have. And so it's just a question of how that model might work. And for folks who want to dig into some of the latest research on a a modern day free market model for uh, private security, especially at the the most basic level, like the home security, our friend Gil Guillory, who I guess we've both known about as long as we've known each other, Norman. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he's worked on this idea of a subscription patrol and restitution service model where basically you get the most effective kind of patrols, which are foot patrols rather than car-based, in a suburban type neighborhood. And he thinks he could do that for as little as 5% market penetration. He could patrol whole neighborhoods. And so that's in a context where there are policyholders paying for insurance basically against the losses that could be accounted to third-party criminal activity, right? And so the idea is that maybe only the 5% would be insured or indemnified, that is, against those losses, but there would be this happy externality, if you will, positive externality for all of those other 95% that, hey, we're going to see a reduction in petty crimes, property crimes, in part just because the foot patrols would drive it down. And so that'd be an instance where there's a, a profit motive to provide a very focused benefit for your policyholders, but something where it sort of radiates out in a positive way for their surrounding community. And I think it's worth kind of noting here too, you know, you talk about property crimes and police are are purportedly supposed to be dealing with that. But isn't the example that we've received over the last year, especially indicative of how politically motivated police forces are really just not that good on any level? I mean, let's think about it. We've seen, for one thing, we're more attuned than ever to police brutality, whether, you know, Certainly, some of that is going to be racially motivated and some of it won't be. But whatever you want to say about that, you cannot deny that police brutality is an issue. And then secondarily, when you see the, the what happens with uh, the violence of the mob in this regard isn't, I mean, the police did nothing in many respects. Right. So there's, there's a dual problem, right? On the one hand, yeah. police have this qualified immunity under this yep. legal doc, this court-invented legal doctrine that prevents them from being directly accountable for most of their bad acts. If it's done under color of law and it's plausibly within the scope of their employment and so on. And so that is a problem of lack of accountability on the, on the one side. And then on the other side, there's a lack of accountability in that 
I can't sue anybody if the police fail to come and protect me against third-party criminality, right? Yeah. I'm being forced to pay through my taxes for the service, but I have no recourse if, if the service isn't up to standard, right? And so, you know, this there's a very famous case that went to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, Warren versus District of Columbia, that specifically held that police don't owe individual citizens some duty for uh, provision of police protection based on their, you know, job function as a, as a cop. That's not something you can sue over that, you know, there was a criminal that was successful in perpetrating a crime against you and you suffered a loss as a result. And I'll tell you, I want a security company that has a financial motive to not mess up, right? To not yeah. have a poor batting average. I want them to earn more of my premiums, keep more of my premiums, the better they protect me, right? And and that's the most sort of direct feedback that we could hope for when we're talking about an important service, right? And certainly keeping people physically safe or protecting, you know, their homes or offices or, you know, capital, you know, the machinery, whatever, all those things are are critically important. And so we'd like to have that important feedback mechanism that incentivizes those actors to do the best job because me having a place to sleep tonight or me having a place to work tomorrow are both critical to my future flourishing, right? So, yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. It, it just doesn't make sense, though, to have what we end up with, which is this this politically motivated police force that doesn't really serve and protect, that is more there to protect the state than it is to protect individuals. Well, right. And and part of it is just this problem of moral hazard, right? Where sure. there is a political decision being made to, you know, for example, tough on crime, right? It's a three-word phrase. It's really easy to <laughs> squeeze into a soundbite. And so tough on crime looks like longer jail sentences or prison sentences, right? Steeper penalties because I'm going to be tough on crime, you know, and we're going to do these habitual offender things and three strikes and you're out and we put you in a deep, dark hole where you only get moldy bread and and rainwater, right? And the problem (laughs) is that people think that sounds good as long as they don't have it itemized on a bill that they have to write a check for, right? Instead, yeah. It gets all kind of glommed into this general fund financing of government. And people really don't see in a way that drives home, uh, you know, what the cost is of these programs. And I think that in a private market environment for security services, I think it's very clear that what we would see is a much stronger focus on people making recompense, right, paying damages for their wrongs loss prevention, and there'd be a lot lesser focus on punishment, right? Because, you know, punishment is expensive and prices ought to signal that to people. And if it did, they would be consumers of less of it. <laughs> so that that's what I really want is a, a market-based system where people can understand the true costs that are going to be imposed on them and others for choosing a particular thing, because then all of a sudden, making decisions based on soundbite doesn't feel so good because you realize there's these consequences for you and your and your neighbors. And maybe I don't want to pay this much a year just for the sake of spite. Uh, so, yeah. Well, and so answering the question about private protection, how would that work? Policing and, and things like that. You know, that those are some of the, the more difficult cases to answer, but there are other ones that people are interested in as well. 
namely things like education, roads, and whatnot. So, but like in the case of something like public education, how would people be educated in a free market? That to me, like in some respects, it's very easy to answer. But there's also like the this aspect of wow, if we actually did have a you know the the state out of the the control of the of the education system just imagine how like how many new models and things that could exist that people would privately fund in order to educate their children and educate themselves frankly that would look different than what does exist and would be so much better because i think the fundamental problem that public schooling kind of it's trying to address it's actually sort of trying to say that there's a problem when none really exists. Does that make sense? Because, you know, people fundamentally know that they have to learn in order to survive. Like, that's a, that's a fundamental part of the human condition. It's like, we are not instinct-heavy animals in this, in, in this universe, right? We're instinct-poor. Yeah. That's it. And you, know? and, you know, part of the problem with education and how we provide it, we all instinctively, as you say, understand that I need to accumulate tools to have a useful life. And sometimes tools aren't just physical tools. Sometimes it's techniques, right? It's learning how the world works and how I can interact with it in a way that makes my time, you know, my labor the most fruitful and and ultimately generates the most comfort and leisure for me at the end, hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. And so we know that there's some demand for education. In fact, there's an awful lot of demand for it because, by the way, it's one of the most expensive things that we have government do. Yeah, You know, and it's funded differently in different states, but it's often very reliant on property taxes. And we have this idea that really is is very late 19th century, early 20th century, this idea that there's this noblesse oblige, right? The the people who are the, the landowners should be providing for the common education of everybody. And in fact, the first way or one of the earliest ways that government provided for common schools in America was through reserving a certain portion of each platted township, uh, you know, as they're as they're platting out, you know, land parcels in each territory or each state, they reserved part of each township to be held in trust to fund education, right? And so that's one of the models that have been used that wasn't property tax based. It was actually, you know, trust lands that were used, and we still use that in Nebraska, although it's a minuscule portion of how schools are funded. But we can absolutely see other endowments that absolutely pay for the cost of operating schools. I mean, if you look at Harvard University right now, at least my understanding is they could stop charging tuition tomorrow and and basically operate perpetually off of their very handsome endowment. And, you know, of course, their uh, academic aid reflects that. There's an awful lot of people that get to go and get a very valuable, at least from the social signal that it that it sends, a very valuable educational experience at zero or or close to zero cost to themselves in terms of what they have to pay for tuition. Right. And so we can see that there's private provision of education, even though the people paying for it aren't the ones who are directly receiving that benefit conferred by spending hours in the classroom and getting those friends and you know who are also trying to succeed and advance themselves. But I I think that as Christians, we ought to understand this better than even just the average libertarian, right? Because we understand why there's actually a sort of a gospel 
education mission, right, of, of teaching children how they should understand the world through the lens of Scripture, right, and through the lens of, you know, the understanding we have of who God is and what our relationship is to Him. And so our desire to provide education to children as believers isn't just purely about them being able to, you know, get the most yield out of that parcel of, of earth over there, right? Or uh, how to perform a job in an office setting the best, although the, we hope to produce those things as well. But precisely because there is a religious motive laid on top of the practical motive, we see that religious education is some of the most heavily subsidized by voluntary contribution. And so as a result, we see that tuition, for example, at Catholic schools or Lutheran schools, you know, some of the larger networks of private or parochial schools, it tends to be far less than the cost, you know, to the taxpayer of producing education for that pupil sitting in a public schoolhouse. So that is why right now a lot of folks who are libertarian or, or liberty-minded are working on what we call school choice. Uh, and that's something I've worked on recently here in, in Nebraska in the legislature, is just trying to find ways for people to successfully route more resources around government and to provide for these private educational experiences so kids can hit the eject button or their parents can hit the eject button, get them out of a school that isn't serving them well, and maybe give them a, a little better environment to progress in. And so to me, that's a great way that we can already work on ways to compete with government or, or support government's competition. Because, you know, Bob Murphy you know, who really persuaded me of this whole idea of libertarianism and, and markets yeah. and the whole deal. You know, I asked him one time what the, you know, hey, what's the plan? What's the strategy? Okay, I'm a, I'm a free market guy to the bone now. Free markets for life. What do we do next? And he, and he just sort of said, well, you know, I don't think it's a revolution or anything. I think that we just have to make it to where people can just sort of ignore government, right? Where <laughs> it's just boring yeah. and we just... Nobody goes there anymore for those services. We all have these cool new way of doing things. And there's just these cobwebs and bored people sitting in the government offices kind of irrelevant, right? And that's, that's what we want to do. Is hopefully, especially since we're peace-loving Christians who don't want conflict, we would rather have a, a peaceful progress to the ideal society that, that we're hoping to advance or at least get closer to because it's a more just society. And maybe that's the way to do it. It's just... Uh, one type of service at a time, one entrepreneurial endeavor at a time that makes people think, huh, you know, maybe bureaucracy doesn't work so good after all. And it's really cool, you know, to consider, as you brought up with regards to Christian education in particular, that historically the church has been amongst the greatest of institutions that have started schools and have provided educational venues for people to both you know, get started in the first place, just providing opportunities for literacy, mm. and then also advancing the sciences and, and philosophy and, and so on. As mentioned, you know, Harvard, as difficult as we might find it now, <laughs> in, in many respects, from a philosophical point of view, was originally started in order to teach theologians. You know, it was Harvard Seminary That's before right. it was anything else. Yeah, and you know, it's not just the highfalutin, you know, uh, theology schools and philosophy and, you know, all that stuff that people would be motivated to pay for, right? Yeah. It's also the absolutely grit around the neck, blue collar jobs, right? And we already have that today, 
in the form of what are called career academies, right? And yeah. a lot of times that's a partnership between a school and a local employer that gets people, you know, young people trained up on real live machinery that is actually used in a real job setting. And here's the place you go to get this job after you're done, right? And that idea that, hey, you know, maybe employers would like to set people up for success as their future employees and give them some of those skills ahead of time while people are nice and malleable and, and thinking about the future and don't have all of the concerns that adults start to have, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you get that education in there, get a kid familiarized with, hey, this is a path that I could take. And a lot of people will take it. And that is absolutely a, a rational thing for an employer to do, right? That's not just purely altruistic. It's self-interested. It's not selfish, right? It's not hurting others. It's not taking from others to benefit me, but it's giving to others to benefit me and, by the way, benefit them too. And I think that that happy coincidence of wants, that's the way markets work, right, is people who have those coinciding wants find each other in a market and market facilitates their coordination in a way that government never can. And this kind of goes, you know, again, back to some of the fundamental things behind, like, why is it that the government is involved in education to begin with? And, And what you're describing there is a very personal path that somebody can choose to take. And the issue, it seems, in many respects, with the idea of public education like this is the almost assembly line mentality that is required in order to run such an operation. As though, you know, the education that one receives can be completely uniform from being very little to uh, becoming an adult and that will be just enough. But I think that something that is certainly more well understood now than at any, uh, than, than at least in recent history, is the notion, and maybe you won't hear it in these words exactly, but education is not fungible. <laughs> or at least perhaps we should say there's very little about education that is truly fungible. And actually, let me explain that a little bit. Because not everybody needs and wants the exact th- same thing out of education period. They have different desires, different personal goals, different objectives that they want to accomplish in their life, different passions, different opportunities that they want to try and pursue. And maybe while perhaps reading, writing, and arithmetic are, you know, perhaps rather fungible in this respect, the universal type skills, it should be just understood that the rest of it is a lot more malleable than we would want to make it out to be. And so perhaps that's a something where, you know, the, the state can't really act like that. The more they try, the worse it gets. Well, and, you know, Brian Kaplan, uh, George Mason has written a really wonderful book called The Case Against Education, which is sort of a curious title uh, for a book written by an educator. Mm -hmm. But it, it really digs into the science on what we can know about the sorts of effects caused by education, right? What you get out of an education, what it produces in the people who are receiving that service. Uh, And so I think that when you have government providing these mass quantities of resources for, you know, not just K-12 education, but now more and more early childhood education. And of course, higher ed has been a huge sink of government dollars for a long time, but especially after World War II, just exploded uh, in terms of higher ed spending that's, that's taxpayer funded or taxpayer subsidized. We don't really know what we're getting for it. Yeah, And it's very hard to tell what we're getting for it when it's produced by bureaucracy. Uh, And so markets can certainly 
discipline the educational institutions better than government funding does because, as we have seen, more taxpayer dollars chasing around educational services, what has that done but bid up the price of those educational services? And so now it's fabulously expensive to go and get a higher education. And, you know, the idea that an 18-year-old would go and work a full-time job and work his way through college seems pretty fantastic right now and really is if we're talking about a four-year school, right? Maybe that's within reach for community college or a lot of technical vocational programs. But, you know, this distortion of tax dollars being used to pay for so much of uh, higher education has really hurt a lot of folks and removed access or made people have to go through government to get something that maybe government didn't need to provide them if it had just left them alone. Now, you know, another thing that is maybe a scarier side of the government monopolization of education, it's not just that, hey, we started handing out a whole bunch of bucks and it was distortionary. You know, there's been a big push in America to outlaw what were perceived as foreign influences in education. And here in Nebraska, there was a very famous case in the early 20th century, Meyer v. Nebraska, which was about school teacher being criminally punished for teaching children in German. Because at this time, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. There were a ton of German immigrants who had come, or German-speaking immigrants who had come to Nebraska. And so there was actually a, a criminal penalty for educating a person under the age of 18 in a language other than English. And that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, where the court overturned the conviction and said that, you know, ultimately there's this right of parents to direct their children's education and this this law that criminalized education in the child's native language was unconstitutional. But even before that, there was uh, this push to enact what was called the Blaine Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and that was going to prohibit direct governmental aid to any educational institution that had a religious affiliation. And so now that sounds like, hey, doesn't that just line up with the First Amendment? But remember, especially in our era today, there, there are all sorts of public and private institutions. Some of the private ones have religious affiliations. Some of them don't. And if government said, hey, you can only use government dollars at secular schools and you can't use them at religious schools, that would be discrimination against people on the basis of their religion, right? At least that's the, the argument. And so the Blaine Amendment push, though, was really about the fear of Catholicism and the desire to basically make it as hard as possible for Catholic schools to open. And so uh, there really has been political effort to stymie the provision by churches of education for children, not just on sectarian grounds, but really on sort of know-nothing, anti-immigrant, you know, anti-other xenophobic grounds. And that's the sad but unfortunate truth of the history of public schools competing with and trying to stamp out private schools in America. So while it may seem like at times that the provision of a public good is a morally neutral thing, it's just for the, it's for the betterment of mankind sort of thing, it just turns out, in fact, that, you know, it's more often than not, in fact, that there are going to be other motivations at play and there's going to be problems that you will not foresee that when you bring the politics into it will inevitably corrupt the situation. Yeah, and, you know, final thought on this, at least for me, I, I think that there's a lot of confusion just about cause and effect. Yeah. And a lot of people think, well, gee whiz, 
government really started creating all these public schools or common schools. And look, we saw this increase in literacy. And, and the fact is that as society grew more prosperous over the past couple hundred years, yes, more money was invested in education because we could afford it, right? And that is something that was brought about by markets and by industrialization and the advance of technology that makes people more productive, right? That makes a laborer produce more. And so, you know, it's not just a, you know, an accident that we see more education follow, you know, more prosperity, but it's a mistake to think that if the government hadn't done it, then somehow that demand wouldn't have been satisfied, right? The fact is that people desired it, they could afford it. We ended up seeing the state, you know, basically create, you know, this cartelized market and dominate the educational market for the most part, although it hasn't entirely stamped out the competition. But, you know, it's not the case that, you know, the first politician breathed life into the first bureaucrat and that's where our first public school came from, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a good place to kind of end up here and that there are so many more things that we could talk about with respect to public goods and their provision in a free society. But there's a limited time and limited resources in order to to do that. But we do encourage you to take a look at our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions, where we talk about in Chapter 7, Public Goods and Services, and provide you, the Christian, with some short and concise ways of talking to your friends about these sorts of ideas. Dick, I want to thank you once again for joining me here. And for everybody who's still interested in in obtaining a copy of the book, you can do that at Amazon.com and also on our website at LibertarianChristians.com. We hope you'll stick around for more episodes of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. And again, Dick, thanks for being here with me. Thanks for having me, Norman. All right. We look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.